Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Let's pray together. Father, we come into this sacred space, into this sacred moment, and we give you praise. God, with all of our inmost being, we cry out to you and give adoration to you. Help us this morning to not forget the benefits, your loving kindness, and all that you have shown us, God. Reveal yourself to us anew this morning. Fill our hearts and our souls with the praise you so richly deserve. It's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen and amen. And thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning into that uh, time of praise. I hope it has encouraged you this cold January morning. I hope uh, the start of the new year is going well. Uh, it's great to be back with you. Uh, I technically have been with you the last couple of weeks, but just not up here in this capacity. And so I do want to offer another word of gratitude and appreciation for Mike McQuitty, uh, who, who filled in for me on New Year's Eve. And then Dallas Harvey did a great job on January 7th talking about the Great Commission. And then as we just referenced, uh, Santos speaking last week about uh, how we can uh, please God, live a life that's pleasing to God by drawing from the lessons of Noah. And so I was encouraged and ministered to by their messages. I trust and hope you are all as well. Uh, but it is, is good to be back and to step into the pulpit once again and kind of settle into those rhythms that come with the new year. You know, you go through that Christmas break and all those rhythms are disrupted. They change. And in some ways that's great, but then you kind of get ready for, okay, let's get them back in place. And so ready to start some of those new rhythms for with a new series on Sunday morning. Do want to remind you of some of those rhythms that we have on Wednesday nights for you, especially the ones that we have in place to hopefully complement the time that we spend together on Sunday mornings. Uh, Theology Matters is something we do every Wednesday night that is designed to help kind of process what we hear on Sunday morning. So as we start this new series, uh, as you have questions, you have thoughts, uh, know that every Wednesday at 6.30 you can come. There's a group of us that gathers. We, we open up any, any sort of dialogue about the Sunday message. I'm there to, to hopefully engage in that capacity. We'll, we'll spend some time in prayer together. Um, and hopefully that can be something that really complements what we're doing on Sunday morning. But there's a lot of great things also on Wednesday night. Uh, we've got great things for children, for youth. And so if you're bringing your kids, you need a place to come, you can come join us in Theology Matters. We've got discipleship groups that are available to folks. We've got renewal, as you just heard about. So a lot of great options for you. So between Sunday and Wednesday, I hope you use those things to help settle into these rhythms of the new year. That being said, we're starting a new series. And our series is going to take us on a journey through the Psalms. Uh, I love the Psalms. Uh, I hope you do as well. It's been a while since we really just camped out in them, uh, but we're going to for the next couple of months. And if you are familiar with the Psalms at all, and you just kind of read through it, what you find is a wide variety of emotions uh, that you can see that the psalmist displays. I mean, sometimes we see just the psalmist in deep and desperate need or overcome with fear or grief. And then other times, like the song we just sung, uh, you see an overwhelming sense of joy or thanksgiving and praise. And so there's a wide gamut of emotions. 
So what has happened with the book of the Psalms is that as people have studied it throughout the years, uh, a lot of scholars have tried to categorize different genres of Psalms. Uh, that can be tricky uh, because a lot of times those elements and different themes are at play in, in the same Psalm, and sometimes they're pretty dominant in just one. But really, when you look at all the different, all the different research that's out there, not everybody agrees on the number of categories or the number of genres of Psalms. Um, and so it may fluctuate, you know, in terms of the number and the labels that you assign to them. Uh, I was reading the IVP Historical Dictionary of the Pentateuch, and here are some of the categories that they uh, identify that, that we'll probably refer back to throughout the course of this series. But to just give you kind of a sampling of the different types of psalms and the different ways that the psalmist approaches the Lord uh, through the Psalter, you, you see uh, things like entrance liturgies, psalms that were sung for the people as they entered into the temple preparing for worship. You'll see lament. In fact, the most common psalm that you have are laments, sometimes personal laments, oftentimes communal laments. You, you see psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving, royal psalms, wisdom psalms, enthronement psalms, and, and a wide variety of all those different things, like I said, can sometimes emerge just in one psalm or be separate from one to the next. I mentioned that to you in that wide variety because that's going to be how we structure this series. Each week, we're going to look at a particular genre uh, of one of those psalms and use that as a way to kind of get a good holistic sense of all the different ways the psalmist prays and worships before the Lord. And that's kind of why I want to do it, is my hope is that by looking at all the different types of psalms and all the different ways that, that you see those revealed through the psalms, you can get a good sense of, of ways that it might inform your prayer life or might inform how we worship, right? A lot of times when we think about um, worship, we tend to categorize it to something that needs to be joyful and needs to be uh, filled with thanksgiving and lighthearted like, and all these different things. But I would tell you that lament is a huge aspect to worship that we often neglect, right? Or a lot of times we think about our prayer life and we think, well, if I come before the Lord, I've just got to have everything in place. I've got to have everything in order. I've got to be in my best behavior. And we miss the fact that maybe sometimes we need to bring our anger to the Lord. We, we need to bring our fears to the Lord. And so by looking at all the different ways that the psalmist brings his emotions, his, his fears, his concerns, his thoughts to the Lord and the way in which that's represented, I think it'll help enrich and, and enlighten and inform the ways in which we can pray and the ways in which we can worship. And, and here's my fundamental goal through all of that for this series, is that if we can go on a journey like that, what we will discover is that God is, is absolutely the safest relationship you can ever have. And that's kind of how we've titled this series. Right? We, we all are designed for relationships. We're, we're all longing for that. And, and my hope is that this sermon series takes us on a journey where we are able to find the safest relationship in your life. And I think that'll gain some clarity as we work through it. Today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 103. Uh, we just sang it. Uh, we're going to work through just those first five verses. I preached on Psalm 103, I think, way back in 2017. Uh, so if you want a more complete uh, in-depth look of Psalm 103. You can go back and find that on the website. But today we're just going to look at the first five verses. And, and the reason I'm doing Psalm 103 today is, is though you'll quickly discover that it is a psalm of praise, uh, we're not using it as our psalm of praise today. We're, we're saving that genre. We're going to get to that later. I'm using Psalm 103 today as an introduction to the series. 
All right, I'm going to use it as an introduction because I think these first five verses really help set the tone for this series, but also just remind us why it is that we can see God as one of the safest, really the safest relationship in our life. And so uh, I just read it to you, uh, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and keep it open if you'd like. We're going to just kind of work through it a verse at a time this morning and try to accentuate some of these points. So when you look back at verse 1, you see the psalmist say, praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. And so there, right there at the beginning, we see uh, an undeniable demonstration that this is a psalm of praise, that the psalmist is ready and eager to give adoration to God, to give praise to God, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Now, what's interesting about this opening line, as I was studying it, is that a lot of scholars, what they see with these opening lines and with the progression of the psalm as a whole, is that this is kind of an opening testimony from the psalmist, right? You can almost read and, and hear the psalmist speaking to himself, right? Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. And, and you can kind of hear this testimonial, personal feel. But as you read through the psalm, what we discover is that the psalmist is ultimately inviting a greater assembly to join him in this praise. And so it's kind of that dynamic of someone sharing a testimony that is designed to inspire and invite other people along to, to participate in that praise. These opening lines, though they may read very personal and read somewhat testimonial, they're actually an invitation to the greater assembly. And I want to emphasize that for a moment, this, this idea of an invitation. And the reason I want to stop and think about that for a little bit is because any relationship that we have for the most part, begins with an invitation, does it not? Right? I mean, you think about it, to varying degrees, uh, you begin to try to cultivate a relationship, there's going to be some form of an infight that is extended. Hey, do you want to hang out? Hey, do you have time to chat? Hey, you want to go grab lunch? You want to go grab coffee? You want to go to dinner? You want to go on a date? You want to get married? Right? It depends on, on the, the intensity of the relationship, but it always tends to go back to some form of an invitation. So invitations are important. And when you think about inviting someone into a relationship, you can also recognize that invitations are almost inherently exclusive, right? So depending on what you're inviting someone to uh, and, and how big of a group or how small of a group, the occasion, the purpose, the reason, what you do is you ultimately sit down and you develop some form of a guest list, right? Sometimes this can be a very involved process. Sometimes it can be a very quick process. But you filter through your mind, who am I going to invite? You, you begin to kind of filter through and determine what friends are going to be there. And depending on the occasion, uh, you really kind of have to determine how you're going to rank your friends, segment your friends, whatever it looks like, to determine those invitations. Invitations are inherently exclusive. However, every once in a while, we come across a moment or an opportunity or a situation where it's an open invitation. It's like, come on, come all, right? And those are really cool moments. That, that's the moment that kind of reminds me of my wedding. And you may be sitting there going, now wait a minute, Jeremiah, how does an open invitation remind you of your wedding? Because weddings tend to be somewhat exclusive. Even though they may be larger celebrations, you really have to give thought and attention to that wedding list, that guest list. And the reason for that, as we all know, is because there's a financial component to throwing a wedding. And you begin to think about the number of people that are going to be there. Well, that's the number of mouths that need to be fed, plates that have to be purchased, invitations that have to be bought, centerpieces that have... There's, there's a dollar amount that quickly emerges with your guest list. 
So brides and grooms get together. They start to plan their wedding. They figure out the budget, and they say, okay, we can invite this many people. And they come up with a guest list, and then they have to figure out, okay, well, who are you going to invite, who are you going to invite, and you try to hit that number. It tends to be somewhat of an exclusive process. But if any of you know my wife, my wife loves people. Okay, uh, she values relationships to a very high degree, and anything that is exclusive kind of runs contrary to her nature. And so, when we were getting ready for our wedding, and we had done the whole invite list thing, we had mailed out the invitations, we had a couple of extra invitations around. She would keep them in her purse, and wherever she went, like if she was out running errands, if she was at a restaurant, she was out at the mall shopping, she was at, on campus. If she ran into anybody that she had seen, that she knew, that didn't get an invite. She was like, oh, hey, did you know we were getting married? And she just started pulling them out of her purse. It was like she had tapped into her inner Oprah, and she was like, you get an invitation, and you get an invitation, and you get an invitation. And her mom's over there going, could you please put those away? Uh, She was like posting them on the landing in our fraternity house and sorority houses, like, everybody come. So we ran out of food, um, which I didn't realize until this morning, actually, as I was telling her I was going to tell this story. She's like, you knew we ran out of food, right? I was like, I had no idea we ran out of food. Uh, But (laughs) that's because all these people showed up. And the reason she did that is because that's her nature, right? Her nature is come one, come all. And, And not only that, that moment of, of celebration, that wedding, was, was a call and an invitation to praise, right? It was this, this awesome moment, this celebratory moment, and she wanted other people to be a part of it. And so when I was looking at the psalm, it really reminded me of that moment in my life because this is what we see with God. This is his nature. Come one. Come all. This is an open invitation to praise. And he wants to invite you into that relationship. He wants to invite you into that experience of praise because it is worth celebrating. There is this joyous opportunity in knowing him and being a part of that relationship, relationship with him that he is extending to everyone. So the opening question for you, not just for this message, but really for the series, is how have you responded to the invitation of God? He longs to be in a relationship with you. And so if you're here today, and and there's any of you here that feels forgotten, neglected, overlooked, that you have escaped God's notice, let me tell you that is not the truth at all. He sees you, and he extends an invitation to you. Maybe your relationship with the Lord you've, you've taken for granted. Right? Maybe it's kind of morphed into this, this relationship where he's like the guy that keeps texting you to hang out and you keep forgetting to respond, or he's the phone call you're screening. Oh, not right now. I just don't have time. Right? I'm terrible at RSVP into things. We'll get these invites, and I'll look and say RSVP. I'm like, oh, I really need to do that, and I'll set it aside and completely forget. Maybe that's you and your relationship with the Lord. You know it's there. He keeps hounding you, you feel this prompting, but you just keep pushing it aside. How have you responded to the invitation that God has extended to you? He is inviting you into a relationship. Do not miss the opportunity to enter into it. That's kind of what we see in this opening line, this invitation to praise. As the psalmist continues, he says, praise the Lord my soul and forget not all of his benefits. Uh, What we see here is this word benefits that means kindness that is shown. 
right? This is a word that reminds us of the goodness that God has shown us. And it also gives us a reminder that there are many times that we can forget the goodness that God has shown to us. And I would say this is also true of any relationship that we have, right? Uh, A lot of times we can have these relationships and we can forget how good they've been to us. We can, we can kind of neglect the kindness that people have shown to us. And I think one of the reasons that we fall into that trap is because we're prisoners of the moment, aren't we? Uh, we're kind of mindful of whatever that current relationship status might feel like. Uh, it, we're kind of like, what have you done for me lately sort of people? That's great that you got us 12 wins in the regular season, but what did you do for us in the playoffs, right? Like that's kind of how we often treat people, just an example. And, and so, so oftentimes you think about these relationships in your life, and, and if a relationship all of a sudden hits some friction, or some distance, or some adversity, it's easy for you to forget all the goodness that that person has shown you, right? And, and this can happen a lot of times with how we, we treat God, right? If all of a sudden God is, is feeling somewhat distant, or uncaring, or or there's a disconnect, all of a sudden we can easily forget all the kindness and goodness that he has shown to us. And so that's what the the psalmist is trying to get us to say is don't forget. And verse two really kind of becomes a transitional verse for the rest of these these verses, verses three, four, and five. A, A time where the psalmist calls to mind and reminds himself and reminds the assembly of the benefits of this relationship with God, of the kindness and the goodness that God has shown. Let's reread verses three, four, and five, and we'll look at them together. He says, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Look at those key words. Here are some of the benefits the kindness, the goodness that God has shown us according to Psalm 103. He forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, he satisfies. What a list. That's a remarkable list. And each word, honestly, probably warrants a sermon in and of itself. Uh, We don't have time to, to go into that level of detail. My goal for us today is to quickly define these words and to call to mind exactly what they mean for us in our relationship with the Lord. And so when you think about that opening uh, benefit, that opening example of goodness that God has shown us, that the psalmist calls to mind, he forgives all your sins. The word forgive means to pardon, to set free from, to remove guilt. If there's anyone here this morning It feels like there's no way God could forgive you, right? If you come in here with certain burdens that if you were honest for a moment before the Lord or before a brother or sister in Christ and say, I really need to be set free from some of these things, right? If if you've fallen into moments where you've convinced yourself that God forgives others, but there's no way that he could actually extend that to me after the things that I've done, right? Fill in the blank. There's no way God could forgive me for the way I lost my temper with my spouse. There's no way God could forgive me for the drugs that I've tried, the lust that I've consumed. There's no way that God could forgive me for the abortion that I had. There's no way that God could forgive me for the way that I've treated my friends. There's no way that God can forgive me for the shame that I've brought upon my family. Whatever it is 
that is in your mind that you keep as a dark secret that no one else knows, hear me today, God forgives you. Not some of your sin, not part of your sin, all of it. He is a God who forgives. That is the goodness, that is the kindness that he extends to us. Do not forget it. And he heals all your diseases. To heal means to restore, to bring back to a right place after experiencing some form of sickness, injury, some sort of wound. When I read this part of Psalm 103, I often hear this healing both physically and spiritually. Right? And so I would speak to any of you that are here today that are needing some form of physical healing. And we can recognize the range with which that can happen. It could be something as insignificant as, man, my knees hurt, my hip hurts, I've got a head cold, to something even that much more significant that you're battling cancer, that you're facing, with, facing some sort of really terrifying condition or ailment. Whatever it is, I want you to know God can heal you. Like, I don't know that we always believe that. But he can, and he wants to. Now, we can be grateful that we live in a society that is, that is truly saturated with some pretty remarkable medical care, incredible doctors and nurses and hospitals and technology and medicine and all these different things. And I see those things as a provision of our God, like a common grace demonstration to us that, that he can use those things to bring about our healing. And so sometimes he uses those things. Sometimes he just heals us. But we need to believe that. And if we ever question it, if we're ever skeptical of it, let us go back to the Gospels and see that that was a huge aspect of the ministry of Christ. He healed people to show his love, to show his compassion, to show, to show his mercy and his authority. So let me encourage you today, if you need some sort of physical healing, ask him for it. Come and be prayed over at the end of the service today. Like tell someone, cry out to him for it. Right? He wants to heal you. And maybe it's not just physical, maybe it's spiritual, right? Sometimes that illness, that disease, that wound, that injury is internal. It's in our hearts, in our soul, it's in our mind. And we're shackled by it. We're trying to shake it. Again, he wants and can and will heal you. Now let me emphasize or at least unpack what I mean when I say he will heal you. I think we can have the sort of faith and the sort of belief that we can expect some of those earthly healings. I believe God has, can, and often does provide an earthly healing. But sometimes that healing doesn't occur on this side of eternity. Sometimes that healing occurs when we step into eternity. But make no mistake, church, whether it's in this life or the life to come, you have a God that heals all of your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. The idea of redemption means to save, to rescue from danger. So again, let me speak to you. If you're here today, if you're stepping into 2024, and there are some legitimate concerns for your safety, for your well-being, whatever it may be, understand that our God is a God who hears the cries of his people. When the Israelites were threatened by the adversity and the atrocities of Pharaoh, God's people cried out, and what does the scripture say? He heard their cries. He saved them. I cry out to him. 
He is there to be a rescue for you. But what really brings this verse power is that this redemption, he redeems your life from the pit. Now that word pit uh, can be literal, meaning a hole in the ground where oftentimes people were trapped or they put prisoners. Uh, sometimes referring to those, those pits that were filled with the muck and the mire that you could fall into and, uh, and, and kind of be succumb to. But it also can be somewhat figurative, as I think it is here, and point to the grave for Sheol, death. So let's just speak very plainly, right? Our God saves you from death, <laughs> right? Our God, so rich in mercy, so filled with love, took on flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus that he might offer the perfect and sinless sacrifice on the cross so that by the shedding of his blood, you and I might find forgiveness that we just talked about. We might find the mercy that we so desperately need. But when Jesus was laid to rest in the tomb, three days later, he walked out with new life, showing that he has victory over death. And that's the good news. That's the message that went from village to village and town to town and generation to generation. Every single one of us in here can acknowledge the fact that death is inevitable. It comes for us all. There's no escape, but there is victory in Christ. So whatever fear that that may cast upon you or your soul, understand you have a God that saves you from death. He redeems your life from the pit. Do not forget the goodness he has shown you. He crowns you with love and mercy, love and compassion, right? When you, when you think about the word crown, it means to confer honor upon someone. Right? And so essentially what we have here is that God sees you, sees the value that you carry inherently by being made in his image, and he confers upon you, crowns you with love and compassion, makes you capable of love and compassion, equips you to be a person that has love and compassion. So ask yourself, is that what you're bringing to the world? <clears throat> is that what you're bringing to your relationships, to the people around you? Are you bringing that sort of love and compassion? Because that's what he's done for you. Now, how does he make it possible? Well, part of what's taking place here on this particular verse is that it's anticipating what the psalmist is about to pack, unpack a few verses later, where he quotes scripture. He quotes and refers back to this moment where Moses uh, gets to be hidden in the rock and God covers him with his hand and walks by and God declares his name and says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. A remarkable moment where God reveals who he is, a, a passage that becomes quoted over and over again. The psalmist is about to quote it, and right here he's anticipating that, saying he has crowned you with love and compassion. So what's happening here is that it is a reminder that our God, inherently in his nature, is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And because you and I are made in his image, he has conferred honor upon you to reflect that image in this world and to demonstrate love and compassion to the people around you. Is that what you're bringing to the world? He has crowned you with love and compassion. Do not forget the goodness that he has shown you. And then the last one here, he satisfies 
your desires so that your strength can be renewed like the eagles. But I love this idea of, of satisfies. It means to be content. It means to be confident in the present or the future. Right? I think contentment is a really powerful component to any relationship. Right? A relationship that, that brings contentment is pretty significant. And I remember uh, this being an aspect to my relationship with Jennifer. Uh, it still is to this day, almost 20 years into it now. Uh, but when we first kind of moved out of that like flirtatious dating stage and into the serious season where we had said, hey, I love you, I love you, and dropped the L-bomb and all those different things, and it became like, hey, this is going to be forever. Um, when we got to that point, I remember one of the most amazing things about Jennifer was she made the mundane fulfilling. It was like she eliminated boredom from my life. The most insignificant of moments, like we could go run the, the, the simplest errand. Uh, the one that keeps coming to my mind is like returning a movie to Blockbuster, but I know that dates me. But like literally, I could go take a movie back to Blockbuster, but if she was in the car, it was fulfilling. Like we, we have a relationship and had a relationship when we were younger, like it was filled with adventure, right, where we went on fun dates and travel and all these different things. But whether we had that or if it was just us sitting on the couch, it was fulfilling. I was content, right? And what was neat about that is that we didn't need a bunch of stuff to make the relationship meaningful or fulfilling. Like it wasn't that I needed someone to go do all these things with to have fun. What made it fulfilling was not the stuff or the things that we did. It was her. That's what God does, right? Like when you have this relationship with the Lord and you foster it and you cultivate it, is it filled with adventure? Absolutely. Is it infused with mission and purpose? Absolutely. But it's also filled with sometimes the mundane, the simple, what might seem to be insignificant. But regardless of what complexion it takes, it is fulfilling, not because of the things that you do for God, but because of God. It's not that you have to serve him and do for him, but you have him. He is enough. He satisfies your desires. Y'all, that's remarkable. So how does that work, really? Right, well, here's, here's how it works. Okay, when you find that God satisfies your desires, part of what you discover is that the reason he's the only one that satisfies those desires is because he made you. He knows what's going to fulfill you better than you do. And when you discover that the only thing that actually fulfills you is him, your desires are reoriented. Right? It's not that he's some genie in the sky saying, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? Let me grant your wishes. Let me just fill every desire. But in the chasing after the wind, in the pursuit of earthly things and coming up empty over and over and over again, we discover there's really only one thing that satisfies our souls, and it's Him. It is only in Him that we find that contentment, we find that confidence in our present and our future. And so when we find that contentment, what happens? Our strength is renewed like the eagle's. So the, the imagery of an eagle is often used to give this picture of, of freedom, uh, of vigor, 
right? And, and so part of what I, I believe is happening here is the psalmist is saying, listen, when you keep trying to find fulfillment in earthly things, it's exhausting. A life without contentment, trying to fulfill those desires will wear you out. And so this isn't a, a vigor or a strength or a renewal that is contingent upon age or contingent upon experiences. This is about you finding a contentment that sets you free from the chasing after empty pursuits and recognizing that there is only one thing that fulfills me, and it's my creator. And when I find that fulfillment and I find that my soul and my desires are fully satisfied in him, my strength is renewed (laughs) all the days of my life. What a remarkable thing to behold in our God. Let us not forget this morning, church, what he offers us. He offers forgiveness. He offers and is extended to each and every one of us healing, redemption. He's crowned you, satisfies your very soul. I want to close by us thinking about relationships for a moment. Okay, I think it's not lost on any of us that relationships are pretty important. Um, and, and that shouldn't come as a surprise because this is being referred to in study after study right now. There are so many studies that are, are kind of being published right now that tell you what's the greatest predictor of happiness, right? And if you go and you look at any of these studies on what the greatest predictor of happiness is, you know what it consistently points back to? Relationships, right? Not money, not fame, not success, not adventure, not, uh, the greatest predictor of happiness is relationships, right? And that shouldn't come as a surprise that that's what they're finding in these sociological studies because what do we see in the scripture? We see that we have a relational God who who wants to have relationship with those that he has created. And because we're made in his image, we are relational creatures to the point that it says it is not good for mankind to be alone, right? So relationships are incredibly important. And so here's what I want you to do for a moment to try to crystallize this. I want you to think about some of the best relationships in your life. I, I really want you to take the time here as, as we're wrapping up to picture them, all right? So start with some of your best friends, whoever they may be, however many that is, whatever names, but I want you to picture them. I want you to, to think of them. I want you to think about certain memories that you have with these friends what it is that you've shared with them, those experiences that have brought you close. I want you to think about those friends in your life and how great those relationships are for you. I want you to think about your workplace, your school, right? The colleagues that you have, the coworkers that you have that bring meaning to your day-to-day, right? Even, even if you're not just best of buds outside of it, that when you're there at work, there, there are those handful of people, however many there may be, that, that help make that experience more enjoyable. I want you to think about not just these friendships or these coworkers or these colleagues or these peers. I want you to think about the intimate relationships in your life. Take a moment, and I'll, I want you to think about your parents, mom and dad, how they poured into you, how they invested in you, 
the foundation they laid for you, the support they've shown you through the years, how meaningful that's been for you. I want you to think about children, if you have them, siblings, playmates that you've had in your own home, that you've grown up with, and how they've created moments of competition, maybe, frustration, but also incredible support and love. Think about children of your own, if you have them, the incredible joy that they've brought to your life, tremendous frustration as well, we all know that, but amazing joy that you can't put into words. Think about your spouse, if you have one, and all the moments that you've shared that have ignited just incredible laughter, incredible joy, or the way that you've supported one another through tremendous adversity or tears. I want you to think about these relationships. And what I think we can all recognize is that as great as they are, and significant as they are, every single one of them is fragile. You know that any one of those things that I just mentioned, any one of those relationships can be broken in an instant. All right, friends can come and go. Colleagues can become acquaintances or competitors. Mom and dad can be hurtful, neglectful, could have abandoned us. All right, siblings could have caused too much friction and estrangement. Children can be sources of rebellion and heartache. Spouses may fall out of love with us or inflict just as much pain as they did comfort. Every single one of these relationships in your life is incredibly fragile, and you know it, consciously or subconsciously. And so what that means is you know that when you step into these relationships, you're taking a certain level of risk. And you're constantly asking yourself these questions, again, consciously or subconsciously. Can I really trust this person? Can I trust them really with what I'm thinking right now, how I really feel, what I've actually done? Can I really bring all of my anger to them, all of my fears? Can I, can I really open up freely with my sadness with them? Will they, will they fully share in this joy or feel like it's insignificant? Over and over again with these relationships, you're asking these questions, and you know it's fragile. You know it's risky. You know that a lot of times they're going to disappoint. And so with almost every relationship, you put up a certain level of wall, certain distance, because you're not sure if it's safe. Church, how remarkable is it? That you have a God that every time you ask those questions, can I share what I'm really thinking? Can I really bring all of my grief, all of my fears, all of my joy? Is it really safe? Every time you ask that question of your God, the answer is yes. He is the safest relationship in your life. Imagine having someone that no matter what you've done, it never outstrips the forgiveness they can offer you. 
Imagine having a relationship in your life that whenever you're sick, whenever you're hurting, they're there to heal you. To have someone in your life that when you feel the threat of danger or walk in the valley of the shadow of death, they're there to redeem you. Someone in your life that is going to confer upon you and honor you with love and compassion. To have a relationship that truly will satisfy every desire and make you confident of your present and your future. This is who your God is. May we not forget his benefits, the kindness and the goodness he has shown. And let us be enthralled today that this is the God who extends an invitation to you. So let us come together and praise his holy name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we thank you. God, our words fall short for the depths of our gratitude, for the kindness and the goodness that you have shown. God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you, God, for the way that you heal. Thank you for the way that you save and redeem and you crown us with love and compassion for the ways in which you satisfy our desires, God. Thank you for teaching us that we can come to you with anything. And so, God, this morning, may our praise erupt in this sanctuary with the sincerity with a level of joy, with a level of honesty that only can be created and fostered by your Spirit. Illuminate within each of us the ability to see your goodness this morning. God, that with all that we are, all of our inmost being, that we would give you the praise you so richly deserve. Thank you, Father, for being the safest relationship we can never know. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.